Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. As our crisis series within the Alpha Exchange continues, it was a pleasure to catch up with Stephen Englander, the head of G10FX and North American Macro Strategy for Standard Chartered. We reviewed the fast-moving aspects of the marked dislocation and the manner in which pricing relationships typical of normal markets cease to hold. As many of our listeners are steeped in equity volatility, it was great to solicit Stephen's views on risk as expressed through FX. His team's work on the relative performance of haven versus carry currencies during the dark days of March illustrates the manner in which the crisis expressed itself around the globe and across asset classes. On the Fed, Stephen has much to say beginning with how the speed and degree of policy response has exhibited a strong impact on asset prices as investors firmly shake hands with the central bank. We talk as well about the outlook for inflation, the market's capacity to absorb the coming tidal wave of U.S. government debt, and scenarios for the dollar. I really enjoyed Stephen's perspective and hope you do as well. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Stephen Englander. He is the head of G10FX Research and North American Macro Strategy at Standard Chartered. Steve, it's great to have you on the Alpha Exchange today. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. And been following your work and seeing many of your appearances on Bloomberg and your insights on the cross-asset landscape I've always found very useful. And I can't imagine that this latest period has kept you unbusy. I'm wondering, as we get our conversation started, looking back, we're about two months from the lows in the S&P, roughly two months from the peak in the VIX. As you think back on the sort of crisis in asset prices and the massive movements that we saw, what are the top things that, as you reflect on all that action, what was most unusual to you? What was most striking to you in terms of asset price relationships? I think there was a basic one that the asset prices were as disconnected as fundamental particles were a nanosecond after the Big Bang, that none of the normal relations held in place, none of the safe havens worked. You're seeing people desperately selling treasuries for cash. Sometimes you would see high beta currencies appreciate because the market was short them already and they were buying them back. So I think that the complete dislocation of markets, even to a greater extent, however briefly, than what happened in 2008, I think was a big shock. Second thing I think that was striking is that how quickly the market bought into the Fed changing its policy stance and kind of believing in the Fed. So I think that there's, to some degree, that they're looking for a structural change in the economy which will benefit some sectors, hurt the other, but kind of be relatively neutral overall. So that looking at this, they're kind of saying things that require face-to-face interaction, that kind of business is going nowhere. But the sorts of businesses that enable you to maintain demand, maintain the supply chain, maintain distribution, but get around the fact that nobody really wants to be within six feet of anyone else, those kinds of businesses are going to flourish. And so I think that whereas many of us in the market were focusing on the dislocation, uh, the depth of the downturn that we were going to see, I think those who were buying were sort of saying that some areas are going to benefit and some areas are going to lose. 
And so the net with the Fed intervention, they were more optimistic, again, than many of us would have been. And so far, they're right. That of course, it remains to be seen whether that plays out that way. There's a lot of talk. I think there was an Economist cover story about the divide between markets and the economy. And a lot of folks on the bearer side say that asset prices don't fundamentally reflect the damage that has already hit the economy and what's to come as well, just given that this is such a significant shock that's difficult to solve. Some others say that when you evaluate the fundamentals, the Fed is, in fact, very much a part of the fundamentals. How do you reconcile that? Is coming into the risk asset side of things, is it about shaking hands with the Fed from your perspective? And how firm a handshake do you think that can be? I think for now, the handshake is very firm in the sense that for the Fed, looking at how the equity market is doing, it's kind of a shorthand for whether they're accomplishing what they want to accomplish. And it's not that they're obsessed with the equity market like some politicians are, but I think in terms what they see the issue is that this is a credit crisis, a credit crunch, and the weakness or strength of the equity market reflects the availability of credit to different sectors. And so I think that for the Fed, the fact that the market is this high is a good sign because it suggests that the kinds of dislocations that they were fearing and people in the market were fearing, that at least for now and perhaps partially, they've been able to push back against those. I was going to see if we could draw some parallels and maybe some distinctions between now and 2008. And 2008 was also a credit crisis, but it was really concentrated in the lender and Wall Street and all of the skepticism that came from the toxic assets. Here you have something that is ultimately about the wherewithal of the borrower and the ability to repay. How should we think about, again, the what could be a long-term cycle of demand destruction in the economy and difficulties from the borrower's ability to repay. Can the Fed, do you think, hold it together for an extended period of time? How should investors think about this? I mean, there's one crucial difference with 2008, that as far as I can tell, the word moral hazard hasn't passed anyone's lips. Whereas I think that once they let Lehman's go under pressure, from Congress not to bail out yet another investment bank or so-called bail out yet another investment bank. I think markets lost confidence in their ability to hold it together. And it took them another six months, eight months to regain that with the whole sequence of programs that had to be put in place. I think this time around, to their credit, they moved very, very quickly and much quicker than the market anticipated. And the model that they used and the language that they used suggested that they were very friendly both towards the economy and towards asset markets. The idea that Bullard put forward that the economy's in a coma or suspended animation for three months and the Fed's job is to keep it hold over that period, I think that very much conveyed the sense that they were willing to provide the credit and willing to do what it takes and they had no hesitation. And that's what Chairman Powell has continue to repeat in his various speeches and appearances. So that, I think, is a major, major difference. Other possible difference is that there was an excess that couldn't be fixed in 2008 in the sense that the asset prices were way out of whack and there was sort of a dislocation in the economy that had 
been allowed to persist for too long in housing, way too far out on the risk curve. I think coming into this, even though it's late in the cycle, the kind of gross imbalances that we saw then, they were much less pronounced. So I think it makes it easier to believe that the Fed can act very quickly and that policymakers as a group can act very quickly to restore the economy rather than say, well, you got to work it out yourselves. And there's some dislocation that has to be accepted before we can restart growth again. Powell's appearance on 60 Minutes on Sunday night, he comes across as reassuring, like you said, both to asset markets and also very sympathetic to the challenges to Main Street and that this is an employment crisis. He also really emphasizes the ongoing bazooka that is the Fed. It's almost as if there's no limit to what they can do and what they will do. Do you agree that that's an interpretation that came from Sunday? And are there any risks to the Fed actually doing too much? They've done a whole lot. Is there a risk of them overdoing it? Well, there's a risk of them overdoing it. I'll talk about that in a moment. But there is a risk that their powers are insufficient to accomplish what they want. In the following sense, that as Chairman Powell sort of repeats, he says they can make loans, they can't give away money. In theory, that applies to the federal government as well as to the private sector. If you look at what COVID is doing, even if it's like a one-quarter or two-quarter event, if you lend money to a business, not for expansion, but if you lend money for a business to cover losses, when they come out of the downturn, when the economy comes out, the business is weaker because the balance sheet is weaker. There's a large loan to the Fed that doesn't have an offsetting profit-creating asset. A large loan from the Fed doesn't have the liability side that doesn't have an offsetting asset that will create revenue on the asset side. I think that coming out of this, in the short term, the loans are designed to enable the businesses to survive, but those who do survive with these loans are going to be much weaker. It's as if you were unemployed for six months, somebody lent you the money to maintain your level of consumption, but then said, but by the way, you got to pay it back over the next three or four years. How many of us can sort of save and repay easily six months of income over such a short period? I think ultimately that there's going to have to be some consideration of making that into a grant and writing off these loans. I don't think they know how to do it. And obviously it's going to involve probably the treasury taking some hits. But I think that the fact that they can only give loans is an issue because this isn't the circumstance that can be solved only on the loan side. The excess risk, I think, is there as well, but it's not immediate. I mean, the Fed can do everything it's doing because there's no inflation. And as long as there's no inflation, they can be everybody's friends because if you take a look at every Fed model, the only thing that stops them from building their balance sheet to infinity is the risk that there's an inflation penalty down the road and therefore they got to stop. I don't think that's an issue in the short term because we've estimated that there's an effective rate of more than 25% unemployment out there. That should be enough to dampen inflation in the short term. Longer term, there's a question, if it does turn out that supply is permanently impaired in the sense that certain parts of the economy just are not viable anymore, that you can't run certain types of restaurants with 25 to 30% of your former capacity, that there's not a business model for airlines with nobody sitting in middle seats, questions like that. What you're talking about is a permanent reduction in supply. And at a certain point, 
supply wins out over demand. And especially if what you're doing is trying to maintain incomes over this period so that the penalty on, on the people who lose their jobs is not onerous. So down the road, I think the issue is going to be how to get people back into work when a big chunk of the jobs that are lost no longer will exist. You're going to have to shift them there. And that's where the inflation risk comes into play. It's not a 2020 risk, maybe not even a 2021 risk. But the longer this dislocation lasts and the longer the Fed basically just sort of underwrites everything with loans, but basically is maintaining demand, the bigger the question mark is going to be as to whether or not we eventually do see inflation down the road. So it's not an immediate risk, but it is something that could happen in the future. I wanted to get your take on this, given your views on the medium-term outlook for inflation. And you tell me if what you think about this. It seems as if each time we hit a crisis point in markets, go back to LTCM and then fast forward 10 years to the financial crisis and now this one here, they're all unique. But ultimately, the result is that the authorities, they don't sit by idly. They come in and try to clean up market functioning. They try to restore demand. So what happens in a big risk off? Rates rally, they get lower and lower. And in this case, you've got the lowest rates on record in the US and now probably the largest deficit spending program that we've ever seen at the same time. How should people think about this glut of issuance that's coming set against very negative real interest rates? What are the implications for the market's ability to digest this kind of paper? I think for now, the market's very willing to digest it. I mean, the question is, what else are they going to do with their assets? What else are they going to invest in? It's not as if too many businesses are engaged in big capital investment programs at the moment. Down the road, I think it is an issue. It's an issue for the dollar. It's an issue for the shape of the yield curve. And it is an issue you know, in the sense that Right now, there seems to be this infinite capacity for the market to absorb deficits and basically for the Fed to be buying government paper and paying out cash and banks put it into excess reserves. And there doesn't seem to be anything that says this can't go on. Down the road, the question of is there a point at which people say, look, we have enough zero yielding assets here and the assets are zero yielding a mile up the curve. Or do they have to do kind of what the ECB does, which is sort of manufacture an upward sloping yield curve so that what they pay out, the banks have an incentive to buy it? Just because it's work doesn't mean it will continue to work. But I think that for now, that's not the issue. I think down the road, we will have an excess supply of dollars issue. And down the road, the yield curve slope will be much steeper. Right now, I don't think that's a big problem. When you talk about the steepness of the yield curve, do you think we arrive at that from a inflation expectations premium? Is that the Fed actually does, even though they are pushing people to not think that they'll do this, but does the short rate ultimately, as you mentioned with the ECB, is it taken below zero? How does the upward slope in the yield curve get manufactured from your standpoint? I think that they're hoping and praying that they don't have to take it below zero. And I think the Fed has already indicated that they'll stand for some pickup of inflation above 2%. And again, the post-World War II model for all the government debt that was accumulated was to inflate it away. 
And I think that there's an intention or expectation, perhaps, however unstated, that they're going to do it this time, but perhaps do it more gently with not having double-digit inflation that we had then, but having some inflation pick up and some period of negative real interest rates. Negative nominal rates, I think, is a tough one. I think right now, they don't feel that they have to think about it in the sense that if they needed additional policy, and they say right now, the number one focus that they have is probably credit markets and trying to understand where in credit markets the next vulnerability might emerge. They took care of banks. They took care of commercial paper. They took care of high-grade short-term unis. They've dipped a toe through ETFs into subprime credit. Now, the question is, is the problem going to emerge because some states in the U.S. have the same CDS that Turkey has and that they weren't viable, didn't look too viable in January, and they look even less viable now? Is it going to be that they're nonprofit institutions that have borrowed money or don't have any kind of revenue stream that's going to support that? So I think that they're looking to try and find a way of avoiding defaults in the economy that have ripple effects and spillover effects in other ways. So if you sort of shook them awake in the middle of the night and said, if, if there's a problem, where do you think it's going to be? I don't think they think it's the short end of the treasury yield curve or even the long end. I think that they'd say somewhere out there in credit markets, outside of high-grade credit, there's going to be a thread that unravels and threatens to take everything down. And we have to be prepared to do that. And they're probably organizing the treasury to give them the capital or the equity tranche back up to lend to these segments. And the problem is, once you get outside the corporate sector, it's hard to sort of say, well, there's going to be a revenue stream down the road that's going to pay it, that's going to sort of enable you to repay that loan again. So I think that is a worry. And it comes back to the grant versus loan issue that I discussed before. Negative rates, I think sincerely, they just think it is so unproven. It's like somebody coming to you and sort of saying, yeah, here's this bottle of wine. It sort of comes from the Northwest Territories in Canada or Yukon. Do you think it's going to be good? And the answer is probably have no reason to think it's going to be good. And not sure I want to try it. And I think they it's not that they have an issue conceptually with negative rates. They all understand the models. The issue is, A, is there clear evidence that it works? And the answer is, there's claims that it works, but it's not that clear. And even if you look closely, say, at some of the ECB papers that discuss the benefits of negative rates, they're kind of talking about 50 basis points or something equivalent or like less than a percent expansion in bank credit that they attribute to their policies. It's not like they're saying, hey, this has been so great. It's been massive. And I think that they're looking at this and saying this is really unproven and we have much bigger issues. Plus, before they get there, I think that they would do something like yield curve control. They would do more QE. There's a bunch of policies that they have more confidence that they would put in place. The other issue, and this is often obscured, partly because the central banks that have done this have tried to do this sleight of hand. If you ask the question, say we go from 50 basis points to 25 basis points, whatever our model of the economy is, what impact? We're going in positive territory, cutting 25 basis points. Okay, then we're in negative territory. Say we cut from minus 10 to minus 35. Is there any reason to think that that cut in minus territory is going to be more powerful 
And in fact, you can think of several reasons why it would be less powerful, just because there's always a cash option that you have. So it's not going to work. I think the Fed has sort of figured out that you go negative and you bang the drum and you have the bells ringing and say, we've gone negative. This is going to be massive. This is going to inspire demand and lending and everything that you can imagine. But they know that's not the case. If anything, the models would tell them that the best bet is that if you go negative 50 basis points in negative territory is ease. It's less powerful than 50 basis points in positive territory ease. So if you're doing it, you'd better be ready to do it big time. And I don't think that they think politically that would work in the U.S. I don't think that they think that a financial structure in the U.S. is ready for that. So I think that they're really reluctant. But I think that the view would be that, look, what BOJ did, there's no clear evidence that it helped anything. And there's plenty of clear evidence from the way Japanese banks have been trading that it did some damage that they're still trying to recover from. I think that the Fed would say, if we're going to do it, if we're going to do such a Hail Mary, you better be prepared to go the distance that's going to take for it to have any chance of being effective. And right now, they're not there. You had mentioned the dollar earlier. We haven't spoken too much about FX, and I know you and your team have done some work on the notion of haven currencies. I'm hoping you can just help broadly define the kind of characteristics of a currency that make it land on either the risk-on or risk-off haven side of the ledger. Bring that to life for us. And then I know you've done some specific sort of study of how havens behaved through this period of dislocation. It's actually very interesting because there's some very strong regularities in how they behave. And if you take a look at periods where the S&P sold off a significant amount, I think we looked at episodes where over a fairly short period, the S&P sold off by 5% or more. It is impossible to make a categorical statement like buy the yen or sell the Aussie because sometimes the yen goes down, sometimes the Aussie might go up. But what you can say with a lot of confidence is if you buy Swiss and yen and sell Aussie, NOC, and CAD, you will do really well. So how they do against the dollar, that kind of it moves up or down, but they all move up or down together. What you can say in a relative sense is that the traditional safe haven against the traditional commodity currencies or traditional high beta currencies, that that rank ordering is very, very solid. Now, in more generally, I'd say that the best thing in the world, if you're a currency, is to be what the dollar was, say, in 2017 and 2018, which is both a safe haven and a high yielder, then you win all the time. In some ways, what the worst thing in the world is to be is a high beta currency in 2020, where you've lost your high yield status because your central bank has been easing, so there's no buffer. And some of my colleagues actually have written about this in the Latin American context. And then the currency just gets crushed because there's no reason to hold on to them. I'd say that being a reserve currency, you know, given that the U.S. has a current account deficit, makes a big difference. It's a long-term safe haven. People feel that you bring an asset into the U.S., the legal system, the financial system will be reliable enough that you will keep that asset, that that will be yours. It won't be expropriated. You'd be able to hold on to it. I think that other cases, having the big current account surplus, so that you don't have to go into international markets to borrow, 
that makes a big difference. And again, I'd say that if you're a small country with completely open capital markets, it's really hard to be a safe haven. I mean, even if you're roughly in current account balance and fiscal balance, when times get tough, people drop your currency, however unfair it is. I'd say that the big current account surplus that works, a little bit of capital controls, even if they're informal, that can help a lot. Being a reserve currency helps a ton. One of the things that, of course, has happened throughout this crisis has been the truly remarkable volatility in oil. And I know that to some degree, some of the carry currencies are correlated sometimes to oil. How has the just massive moves in oil and the explosion of vol, how has that impacted the relative pricing of some of the currencies that are either big exporters, some are larger importers of oil? Has that shown up in terms of the relative pricing very much? Well, yeah. I mean, Naki got crushed. I mean, and now it's coming back with a little bit better sentiment. I think that in this episode, oil did double duty, apart from the usual question of, is there excess oil in the world and so on? And how do we want to trade this? I think it really stood out as being a global proxy for global demand. And so to some degree, oil currencies got traded. Yes, they got traded because of the called the micro fundamentals of the oil market. But they also got traded because the view was, look, if we are having such a big demand shock, it means demand for oil is going to go through the floor might as well trade the asset that's correlated with demand, irrespective of where, not completely independent, but kind of focusing on sort of big downturn, big drop in demand for oil. It doesn't really matter what your break even is or how the oil market per se is behaving. What matters is that that's telling you where the global economy is going. So I think that's why the oil currencies really got hit as badly as they did. It was a turbocharged way of playing the downturn. One of the stories, of course, from 2018 and 19 was the trade war and this negotiation that kept everybody busy trying to understand all the geopolitics. And to some degree, that at least the trade conversation just faded away for about two months because markets were so volatile. When you look at CNH, and I'm staring at 7-spot-1-2, is this a currency relationship that we're supposed to now start to really focus on again? Is it something we should expect to go sideways? What are the markers for you in terms of the dollar CNH relationship? First, the PBOC has been very conservative in how it's managed the currency. And so far, they've shown no indication that they're sort of trying to lead the market or get ahead of the market by depreciating faster than their neighbors to gain some kind of competitive advantage. So I'd say they're very cautious. In the longer term, they want to make China or CNH, CNY into an international currency. And their view is that they're likely to get there faster if the currency is viewed as being a solid currency rather than as being viewed as a volatile currency. That said, when everything else is depreciating, it's depreciated with it, but it's in no sense been a leader in currency depreciation at any point. I'd say that the trade thing is interesting that through 2018 and 2019, I was pretty optimistic because I thought that the U.S. always had a call option on a good trade deal. It might not have been a perfect trade deal with all the stuff that they wanted on intellectual property and China restructuring its industry and so on. 
But it would have been a pretty good trade deal in the sense that China was willing to buy a lot of U.S. products. They were willing to do a lot to satisfy the U.S. demands and to basically avoid the political problem. So U.S. tried to do more, and maybe they did a little bit better in the deal that they finally signed than on the deal that was in the offer on the table and China walked away from. But it's still, at any point, they could have gotten the equity market up by saying, okay, we'll accept China's terms. They'll buy a few more planes. They'll buy a few more, a lot of ag. They'll buy this and buy that. And they'll stabilize their currency. And away we go. U.S. equity markets would have liked it. So in a way, they could always walk back the trade policy and end up okay. I think it's different now that from the point of view of markets, were they to say, okay, we're going to slap a big tariff on China because we really want to punish them. That would show up in prices because they've already tariffed up the easy to tariff stuff. You don't have to buy socks from China. You can buy socks from someplace else. They avoided tariffing up consumer goods because obviously they don't want their constituency to walk into the mall and find that whatever it is, a flat screen is $200 more expensive than it was the week before because of the tariff. I think they're at the stage where if they took dramatic action, it would be impossible for them to avoid the negative spillovers. So I think it makes it harder for them in an election year to sort of do the big tariff thing or to do the big sanction thing. I think that they're looking to try and find policies that they can put in place to punish China, not that would show up in terms of shortages in the U.S. or prices in the U.S. And they might dance this thing around till after the election and then kind of say, okay, we got four more years. We don't have to worry about the inflation consequences. But I think in the short term, the threats are just not that powerful because there's a retaliation threat that could hurt the U.S. equity market. And even the direct effects of what they're doing on many dimensions would show up in a bad way and sort of hurt the constituency that votes for them. So I think China will be on one side of the river and the U.S. will be on the other side and they'll be shouting at each other. But I don't think that they're going to cross that river and really engage in an intense sort of way, maybe after the election. When you look around the world and at just various asset markets, we've talked about China, maybe a little bit about monetary policy and U.S. fiscal policy. What are the types of things that you think might be just underappreciated? Are there kind of common narratives that you think don't properly handicap the risks? What's out there that people might be missing from your perspective? I think one, and I alluded to it before, I think that the focus of the Fed right now is credit spreads. And so I think that sort of worrying about the treasury yield curve that goes up five basis points, down five basis points isn't where they are. I think that they see the remaining widening of the in credit markets as being something that they have to address. So that's going to be part of the policy. And I think it means eventually they go deeper into buying credit and not necessarily sort of investment grade credit. I think in addition, the question of how the economy looks a year from now should be thought about because people tend to be focused on GDP. And I think the issue is going to be that maybe we'll get back a lot of the GDP because if we don't go shopping in a department store, somebody will deliver the goods to us. If we don't go to a movie theater, we'll sit in our living rooms with a can of beer and look at our 64-inch screen on the wall and watch a first-run movie. We'll find ways of getting around a lot of the limitations that may be put on us in terms of production, but the jobs won't come back. So simultaneously, I think we're going to be 
having this world in which monetary policy is easy and parts of this world look as if they've really recovered, but there may be millions of people who who are permanently lost their jobs and who, who have to be moved from the segment of the economy that they were working in to another one. And the Fed and obviously the government with its fiscal powers has to gauge how fast they can do that and what combination of policies will do that without creating excess in terms of either financial markets or in terms of any kind of risk of inflation. So I think that that's going to be a major issue. I think the dollar in the past, if you look back over the last three or four years, we're talking about a world where the dollar was strong initially because of rate differential. Then 2019 was sort of like we ended 2018, began 2019 with the sort of world being shaky. The dollar was a safe haven. Then we had the panic mode in March and early April. Basically, everybody's been buying dollars for years. And I think that the positioning in terms of being long dollars, not just by the usual sort of players in foreign exchange markets, but by corporates, by longer-term investors, I think that's not appreciated enough. And if we do get back to a situation where risk appetites are normal and where the feeling is we're not afraid that there's going to be some sort of credit crunch, the dollar vulnerability is there. And I think it's underestimated right now because the VIX is still 28, so nobody's sort of selling dollars hand over fist. If the VIX goes back to below 20 or to 16, that's long-term average, I think everything else that's kind of represented by or that conveys in terms of risk appetite, I think that dollar risk is more than is imagined in the market. And does that dollar risk, does that translate in your view to a bullish stance on something like gold? Do those things go hand in hand? Yeah. Weak dollar, big deficits, rates zero for a long time. That is a very gold-friendly view. And we are gold friendly. And in fact, we just pushed up our gold forecast the other day. So I'd say that we like gold as an asset. So as we round up, I was hoping to get your thoughts on just where your team is focused, let's say now versus early February, where this perhaps was in the news, but certainly wasn't in asset markets in terms of being something that was priced. No one was working from home. How has your team's focus shifted just given what clients are now asking of you and your team relative to, let's call it three or four months ago? There's a lot of focus on differentiation. And I think that that's going to be the big theme, say, from June on, which is that everybody knows that most of the world is in the sort of nadder of activity right now. Maybe not quite at the bottom, but emerging really, really slowly. And so nobody cares if retail sales is minus five or minus 15. We saw ZEW where the current condition was minus 93, which is almost an impossible position to be in because it implies virtual unanimity in terms of saying things are in the toilet right now. And you didn't have that in 2008. So I think that the bad news right now, nobody cares about. But I think that as we move into the second half of the year, there will be a lot of differentiation in terms of which regions are rebounding the most reliably and which seem to be able to be doing the adjustment, which seem to be able to manage to avoid second or third waves of the virus while being able to restore supply chains. So I think that that's going to be a big differentiation. I'd say that right now, 
some of the numbers coming out of Asia and even out of China are looking better. It suggests that they are repairing themselves a little bit quicker than we would have expected. Some of the trade numbers, I mentioned Chinese oil demand seems to have bounced back. So whatever trade-off they make between dealing with disease and dealing with their economy, I think that the regions that look as if they're doing this the most successfully are going to be the ones that asset markets treat the most favorably. So I think that that's going to be a big part of two, this H2, this differentiation across regions. The other part, I think, is that assuming that we continue, and there's just no indication that any of the major central banks are stopping, continuing with this asset market liquefaction, trying to avoid any kind of issues or any kind of disruption, 200 basis points in terms of yield, 300 basis points in terms of yield, in a world where risk appetite has been restored, that might be the new six or 800 basis points, like the equivalent of 10 or 15 years ago. So I think we're going to get accustomed to smaller spreads, smaller differences in expected returns, generating bigger currency differentiation and sort of generating stronger currency performance. If you have 200 or 300 basis points, that is going to be in a sort of market-friendly environment, that is going to lead to significant appreciation, assuming that there's no idiosyncratic issues. So I think that that is something we have to get accustomed to, that we used to get rate differentials north of a thousand basis points, and we had them, we would say, okay, we're not going to have that anymore. 600, 800 is really good. Notched it down to 400. I think the new sort of threshold is going to be two or 300 basis points. But in a stable kind of economy, and where fundamentals are okay in the sense that the no big political dislocation, no big economic dislocation, no big current account deficit, no big fiscal deficit, and markets are calm, I think 200 or 300 basis points is going to be enough to get capital to flow. And that's going to be sort of the other theme. Who's recovering in the most steady sort of way and sort of seems to be ahead of the pack? And who in a sort of environment where risk appetite is gradually normalizing sort of offers the opportunity of more returns and more kind of not being a lot less than it used to be. You make some great points there, especially insofar as the market's just punting on the econ data just because it's in no man's land. And I agree, a sharper pencil will probably be applied later in the year at the same time when we've got a pretty interesting U.S. election coming up as well. Stephen, I wanted to thank you very much for your time today and sharing your insights with our listeners. It was great to have you on our podcast today. Thanks a lot. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.